And that is the best blues singing I've heard since I heard Daniel sing, I feel good in a bar in Indonesia. (laughs) And if you are wondering what your pastors were doing in a bar in Indonesia, I will defer all questions to Daniel (laughs) and let him answer that. Um, There's an expression I want us to think about this morning. It's called um, a no-brainer. When, when there's something, that, a decision that's so obvious that you just have to do it, or it's so stupid you just know you shouldn't. It's a no-brainer. And it's, um, it's, it's one of our president's favorite expressions about certain political um, bills or agendas that he thinks are just obvious that we need to do. Um, according to President Obama, avoiding the financial sequester was a no-brainer. Um, Passing student loan legislation to keep student loan interest rates low, he says, is a no-brainer. The GOP says that the Keystone Pipeline is a no-brainer. The AFL-CIO says boosting the minimum wage is a no-brainer. Expanding government funding of preschool is a no-brainer, according to some, as was the Boy Scouts' decision on admission of gay scouts and same-sex marriage in Michigan, according to many no-brainers. Um, if, you were to, if you were to just Google no-brainer, you know that there's about 26 million no-brainer decisions out there being, being made these days. And the problem, even as I roll through these examples, is what one person thinks is a no-brainer. Um, that's anything but a no-brainer to someone else. Today, what I want to do is present what I hope will be for you a no-brainer. Jesus thinks this is a no-brainer. Jesus is trying to convince you today that this is a no-brainer. He's going to say, on the one hand, you get to choose between demonic hardening of your heart that leads to condemnation and judgment before God, while on the other hand, You can choose to be part of the family of Jesus. Demonic hardening that leads to condemnation or part of the family of Jesus. Now, that sounds like a no-brainer when you hear it. But for many, it's a much harder choice than that. It's a realm where great spiritual battle often takes place. Should I believe or should I not? And so this morning, it's not a surprise that some of you are here this morning and you're sitting on that fence, should I believe or not? Some of the people that are going to listen to this message on the, on the internet, they're sitting on that fence, should I believe or not? And that's why if you're not in the custom of praying for me as I preach, it would be a great thing to do today to pray as I preach, church, because Jesus says this is a no-brainer. You should believe in me. And we're going to give you a chance to do that today. So let's bow in prayer, and we'll open up the word to Matthew chapter 12. Father, be kind to us. By your spirit and your word, grant faith. Strengthen faith. Help us cherish faith and to believe today. May my words serve your words and that great purpose. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So far in chapter 12, there is this escalating conflict 
between Jesus and some of the religious, religious leaders of his day, especially the Pharisees. Pharisees were the kind of the protectors, the champions of the Old Testament law. So zealous were they to protect the law that they made up laws to protect the law. And we find as chapter 12 unfolds, this conflict is escalating to such a point that when a demon-oppressed man was, who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and Jesus healed him, so that the man spoke and saw the people were amazed, and they said, can this be the son of David? He had a long-awaited Messiah. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man Jesus casts out demons. And then in response to that, just a couple of verses later, Jesus says, whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So the Pharisees are saying he casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus is saying, if you reject me, if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, that's an unpardonable sin. And so this conflict is really, really escalating. And you have to ask the question that we asked a couple weeks ago, how do good religious people end up here opposing Jesus in blatant conflict with Jesus? And what I suggested was that in their focus on protecting the law, in fencing the law, they missed the center of the law, which was to point us to Jesus. They missed the center. They missed Jesus. Don't, for all the religious trappings, miss Jesus. In chapter 12, so far, we've seen Jesus to be the Son of Man, the Lord of the Sabbath, one greater than the temple, who values men and women and heals them. He fulfills prophecy. He's the chosen servant. He's the beloved of God with whom God's soul is well pleased. The Spirit of God is upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He's not a loud quarreler shouting in the streets. He's compassionate to the suffering ones, and he'll bring justice and victory. In his name, all nations will hope. He knows the thoughts of men. He casts out demons because he's bound the strong man who is Satan himself. He forgives all our blasphemies and sins against him. That's Jesus just so far in chapter 12. And today, you should believe in him and not resist him like the Pharisees are doing. Because now these same Pharisees come to Jesus with a request. Some scribes, some Bible teachers, the Pharisees whom we've already met, come to Jesus saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So you get the sense that Jesus does not like their request. Okay? He's not going to honor their request for a sign. Uh, we wonder why. Other times in scriptures, people ask for, the, for a sign, and it's granted to them by God. Here, why in this case does Jesus respond in saying, just asking that question is evil and adulterous? Um, and you get a sense when you think about who the askers are, and what they have just seen and witnessed, that this, this is almost like another one of those traps for Jesus. They've been stalking Jesus. Remember, they're hiding out in the wheat field, leaping out, accusing him of, of breaking the law. And so now, 
If he doesn't produce a sign, then they can say, what kind of Messiah is this? Can't even do a sign. If he does produce a sign, we already know what they'll say. It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. This, this request is really contrary to faith. It's not seeking a confirmation for faith. And so Jesus says, no sign except one, the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah, Jesus says, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the sign has at its heart Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, in a sense, the resurrected Christ himself will be the sign. Someone has said, it's like Jesus is saying, you want a sign? Here I am. Okay. It's me. I'm the sign. When Jesus raises from the dead, that's a sign that God is in this business. Just like Jonah, who wandered into Nineveh, smelling like fish, looking like he just came from the anti-tanning salon, bleached white from his time in the belly of the fish. And the Ninevites had the sense to say, this guy just survived three days in the belly of a fish, was spit up on our shore, and now he comes to us telling us to repent. Maybe God is in this. And so they believe and they repent. Jesus, whom these very Pharisees would assent to crucify, will then be raised on the third day, and that will be their last greatest sign. Jesus resurrected, though they killed him. pastor named Skip tried to tell this story of the resurrected Jesus to, in one of his children's sermons. He was talking specifically about what Jesus said to people when he met them as, a, as the resurrected Savior. And there's a little girl shot her hand up, waving, waving, I know, I know, I know. And so he deferred to her, and she says, I know what he said. Ta-da! And John Orberg tells his story. He says, that's as good a translation as any. Ta-da, Jesus says. It's me. I'm back. You killed me. I'm risen. You should believe. Okay? This is the great sign. It's the last and greatest sign. It's their last best hope to believe. It's the foundation of faith for everyone who believes. We believe in Jesus because he rose from the dead, authenticating all that he taught, all that he promised. In John chapter 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. And so he's predicting he's going to die and he's going to raise on the third day. In our passage, he says the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He'll die and then he'll raise. And don't let the math confuse you. They counted partial days as full days. So Friday he's crucified, Saturday he's in the grave, Sunday he raises on the third day. It's the heart of our faith. That's why we say, he is risen, he is risen indeed. Okay. 
if that's true, if he rose, then you don't need any other sign. You should believe. There's a, a fellow named Thomas Miller. He's a surgeon and a researcher, and he, he tries in a book he's written to explore the miracle of Christ's resurrection from a medical angle. He talks about the fact that in our bodies there are trillions, maybe hundreds of trillions of cells functioning in our body. Each, each cell carries out thousands of different chemical reactions. He says that a bodily resurrection would require some phenomenal power to energize life into all these individual cells. He says, consider the heart. It beats an average of 70 times a minute, 4,200 times an hour, 100,800 times a day, 36,288,000 times a year. And for that to happen, thousands of processes within each cell must act in a coordinated way to ensure that blood flow happens in and out of the heart, in and out of the lungs, exchanging carbon dioxide, picking up oxygen, all these things. Every second, trillions, hundreds of trillions of cells performing these functions in such a smooth fashion that we're not even aware of it. We don't even know what's going on. He says, at the moment we die, all these processes came to a screeching halt. And a bodily resurrection implies that thousands of processes and trillions of cells must be restarted with the unique intricacy and intercoordination that existed before death. He said, this would require not just incredible power, but also unimaginable knowledge. The latest science hasn't even unraveled the complete mystery of each of the cells of our bodies and how they interact and talk with one another. But for the resurrection of Jesus to occur, all that information had to be known in its completeness and totality 2,000 years ago. If the resurrection is true, then you don't need any other sign. This is the sign of Jonah. Christ died three days in the belly of the earth and now risen. You should believe He's thinking about Jonah, and he goes on to talk about the men of Nineveh that Jonah was sent to. He says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation, these unbelieving generation that is before him that he's talking about. And those Ninevites will condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So these folks from Nineveh, they repent when Jonah shows up smelling like fish. You can read this story. It's about three pages long, four pages long in the book of Jonah. How much more reasonable to repent at the resurrection of Jesus the queen of the south, likely a lady from Ethiopia, far from Israel, an unbeliever, came all the way to hear King Solomon's wisdom, and she believed and gave glory to God back to 1 Kings 10, if you want to look that up later. How much more reasonable to believe the wisdom of Jesus? Something greater than Solomon is here. There are these three greater thans in chapter 12. Last, or last time we taught in it, we found that Jesus is greater than the Sabbath. 
Now he's greater than Jonah, and he's greater than Solomon. He's greater than the priests on the Sabbath temple. He's greater than the prophet Jonah. He's greater than the king Solomon. He's the great prophet, priest, and king Jesus is. The Ninevites and the queen of the south both get this. Gentiles and a woman both geographically and spiritually from distant lands, and yet when they, cons- they get considerably less revelation than Jesus in front of them, they get Jonah showing up and Solomon. They believe. They repent and they believe. Jesus is saying how incredibly dangerous it is to have information about me and not believe. And I've pointed out to you before, we breathe spiritually privileged air here. Okay? You had a seminary right down the street. You had a church on almost every corner. 85% of U.S. households own a Bible. And not just one Bible, it's between four and five Bibles per household that the average household owns. Jesus is sounding a sharp Warning, if you have all that and you won't believe in me, judgment and condemnation wait for you from the lips of those who've had so much less and believed. So you should believe. Jesus says you should believe. It's a no-brainer to believe. And this promise of coming judgment is the first incentive he gives us to believe. If you do not, Jesus says, Jesus says you'll face condemnation. He gives another incentive to believe. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first so also will it be with this evil generation. Um, Jesus here, you need to realize, Jesus here is more storyteller than demonologist. Okay? His, his primary purpose is not teaching us a theology about demons here. He is telling a story that warns us about the dangers of unbelief. He tells a story where an unclean spirit leaves a person and goes to a desert place. And apparently it's not a satisfying place for the demon. Maybe it's because uh, the deserts are relatively uninhabited and there's no one there for them to oppress. So they decide, this demon like a prodigal son decides, I'm going to go back home. And going back home, they find that the house, that is the person, is in better shape, more hospitable to the spirit, more welcoming than before. And so the Spirit invites seven other spirits, more evil than itself, making the last state worse than the first for that person. In Jesus' story, Jesus has come binding the strong man, hasn't he? He's been casting out demons. He's tidied up people's spiritual houses. But unless faith in him occupies that house... A greater spirit, the spirit of God through faith in Jesus, occupies that house. Their hearts are liable to be even more hardened to unbelief than before, Jesus is saying. 
This has special application to those today who follow Jesus' teachings and are living a pretty good life as a result. They're upstanding citizens. They're good students. But they are people who look to Jesus simply as a good example, a moral teacher. If Jesus is just another good moral teacher whose teachings enrich your life at points so that you love your neighbor, you don't lie, you don't steal, you don't chew, you don't mess with girls that do. I think Jesus taught that. Isn't that something that's one of Jesus' signs? You can check on that later. If you follow him as a moral example only and you pick and choose about who he will be and what he will do, if you give mental assent to his moral philosophy, but you don't bow before him as Lord and God, you run the risk of being demonically hardened in your unbelief more so than before. Dale Bruner makes this daring application to our middle-class world. He says, The house is clean and empty. The person is religious and hollow. The community is outwardly moral and inwardly purposelessness, purposeless. rather, Empty, clean, and all fixed up, he says, has suburban life ever been better described? He says, few realities are more vulnerable to demonic attack than middle-class life, precisely because this life is so empty, vacuous, and passionless. He says that suburban culture of ours can leave us neutral towards Jesus. And neutral, he says, neutral towards Jesus is an empty house. Unmoved belief in Jesus is a merely swept, unoccupied home. Mere interest in Jesus with no commitment to Him is a home in danger of haunting. The story is addressed to all who accept Jesus with only half repentance, a semi-seriousness, a decreasing fervor, who then dares to think that he or she is not also addressed by this text, he says. They should have believed. Okay. You should believe. Jesus is warning you that if you benefit from cultural Christianity, from church attendance, but you miss Him, if you don't really believe in a way that changes you, it could be that your last state will be worse than your first. It would be harder for you to believe, harder for, for you to see your need to believe from a place of economic success and spiritual comfort. So you should believe. Jesus says that in light of the reality of demonic hardening of your heart if you refuse and coming judgment and condemnation before God, it's a no-brainer. Okay? You should believe. And he adds one more great incentive, a positive one, in the last bit of our text we'll look at. While he's still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, uh, who's my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, when you read this, Jesus seems nothing short of downright rude to his family, wouldn't you say? I mean, what is this about? Why is Jesus so standoffish to his own family? 
The point of Matthew in writing this incident and Jesus in telling it is not primarily to diss his family. That's not Jesus' point. It is of interest, though. When Mark tells this incident, he tells us why the family was there. In Mark chapter 3, he says, When his family heard it, they went out to seize Jesus, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. They thought Jesus was crazy. And you have to wonder if, if your brother or sister was sinless and thought they were the Savior, if you might think they're crazy too. What is Jesus saying here? Clearly he's saying that to be related to him as follower is more valuable than being related to him as family, actual kin. See, the real beauty here, the real enticement to faith here that Jesus is extending is that you get to become like family to Jesus. You are like his brothers and sisters. What does that mean? What would that be like to be a brother or a sister of Jesus? You know, when you become part of someone's family, there's a unique bond that occurs that's like nowhere else on earth. And so I just, I just think this through about my family. I have five kids. My uh, youngest daughter is headed off to college this fall. Now, imagine, imagine with me that somebody messes with my daughter. Some poor fool messes with my daughter <laughs> at school. I say that because she has two big brothers and one getting bigger brother that would be at his door the next day to make sure he understood he should never do that again. And you know why? Because they're family. Okay? Jesus says, we get to be like family. There's the special protective care of Jesus when you're family. Think of all those verses that says God is like a fortress and like a shield for his people. There's special care and affection for one another in a family. This week, my sister had a double mastectomy because of breast cancer. And so I'm on the phone this week, calling back up to Illinois, checking to see how she's doing. She's calling me. Why? Because we're family. Lots of good people in Illinois, I'm sure, are having cancer surgery. I'm not calling them, they're not family. But if you're family, then there's a special care and affection. Jesus says, you're my family if you believe in me. There's this special relationship. Jesus describes just a sliver of it in John 17 when he's praying. He says, I'm praying for, praying for my disciples. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, Father, Jesus is saying. A couple verses later, he says, I do not ask for these only, just for the 12 who are there, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And Jesus is praying for us in this great high priestly prayer because we're family. 
There is special communion in a family. Every Thanksgiving, we pile in our van or in multiple vehicles, and we make a pilgrimage to the panhandle of Florida. Why? Because that's where Steph's family lives. Granny and granddad live in Florida. And so we make the sacrifice of driving all the way down there, and her brothers and sisters come there from Texas, um, from North Carolina. We meet there. Why do we make that sacrifice? Because they're family. We go to this little house on a dirt road in the panhandle of Florida because we want to see family. There's a special communion in family. Drive by all kinds of little houses on that dirt road. Let's go right by them. But there's one place we're stopping. There's one destination. And that's because there's family there. It's interesting what Jesus' disciples were doing when he waved his hand across them and said, These are my disciples. And this is my family, my brothers, my sisters. What were they doing? They were sitting at his feet, enjoying his company, learning from his teaching. That's what they were doing. See, when when you believe in Jesus, you get to commune with Jesus as part of his family. You You get access to him. His real family was outside his spiritual family was in there with him. When you believe in Jesus, when you believe that he's the son of God, come to earth to die for your sins, risen from the dead on the third day, then you get access to Jesus like family. Um, Don't don't miss this. If you believe in Jesus, You've been brought into a family-like communion with Jesus, only better. His protection, his commitment, his affection, his care, his communion, his relationship, access, availability, they're yours like family with Jesus. Don't miss that. You know, things are not right with a family when they don't communicate and they don't love each other. All of us have experienced that in some family scenario at some point in time. Um, there's that, when they call him the black sheep, right? He doesn't talk to anybody, and if he does, he always starts a fight. Some of you are that black sheep in your families. Hey, don't be the black sheep in Jesus' family. Don't be the non-communicative one, the non-loving one. Draw near. This is the beauty of this year's emphasis for us. Draw near to your good and mighty king. Take time for him. Sit at his feet. Let him know what your troubles are. Cast your cares on him because he cares about you. Hear from him about his love and his care for you as his brothers and sisters, his family. This has fuller ramifications for us that the rest of the New Testament plays out for us. Because if these folks over here are Jesus' brothers and sisters, and if these folks over here are Jesus' and brothers brothers and sisters, then these folks are your brothers and sisters. And these folks 
are your brothers and sisters. And you ought to have the same kind of I have your back care for them that Jesus has for you. The same kind of I will be there for you care. The same kind of I want to sacrifice to see you kind of affection for one another because guess what? Jesus has made us family. Now, I know some of you come from really messed up families and you're thinking, I don't want to have a relationship with Jesus like my relationship with my brother or sister. Okay. That's not the image of family that's being played out here. It's not like that. Jesus is talking about brothers and sisters that are marked by love and care and protection and affection and time together, the way family is supposed to be with one another, but most importantly, with Jesus, okay? Thank you. <laughs> Dramatic instrumental interlude <laughs> inserted. I think, I hope you agree with me, Jesus has built a pretty strong case that believing in him is a no-brainer. I mean, on the one hand, you've got a demonic hardening of your heart that leads only to condemnation and judgment if you resist him. But on the other hand, if you will embrace him as Lord and Savior, your God and King, you get to, you get to be part of his family. Jesus intends for that to be a no-brainer for us. Let me ask you to do something. I know this is dangerous, but close your eyes just for a minute, okay? We're almost to the end. Don't doze off. I'm going to have you open them up in just a minute. Just close your eyes for a minute. I want you to think about your coworkers and your neighbors and your classmates and your family who don't yet believe in Jesus as their Savior, their Lord, and their God. What waits for them? Jesus says their hearts will just get harder and harder until judgment and condemnation wait for them. So, oh, what an incentive for us to love and to pray and to speak to these we love and care about of the dangers of unbelief and the sweetness of faith in Jesus. You can open your eyes now, poke the person next to you, um, and think about your own faith in Jesus. Think about it this way. What if there are no more signs for you? What if the healing doesn't come for you? What if the provision of money doesn't come for you? What if the rescue of a wayward loved one doesn't come for you? What if there are no more signs for you? Will you still believe? Will you still trust in Jesus? Will the sign of Jonah be enough for you? Will the death and the resurrection of Jesus be enough for you? I am I'm encouraged by Martha's example. Her brother has been dead. Lazarus has been dead for days. When Jesus comes and says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, with her brother dead in the ground, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, 
I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? And with her brother still in the ground, she says, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, Son of God, who is coming into the world. Can you say that? When your signs are not happening when you wish they would, when you cry out to God for them to happen, is your belief rooted in the sign of Jonah, the death and the resurrection of Jesus? Jesus today is inviting us to believe, inviting us to believe and to be family and to treasure it. You should believe. Let's pray towards that end. Will you bow with me, please? Father, I pray right now for those who came in here on a fence and are sensing you granting to them faith to believe. I know what it's like to not know what to say or how to say it, but Father, if they, if they know they need a Savior and believe that Jesus is that Savior and they want to have a relationship where they are His family, He is their Lord and their brother. Father, grant faith to them such that they will believe and bring them into Your family by the good work of Jesus on their behalf. And Lord, many of us, we've, we've come in and we've neglected this privilege. We've um, forgotten it and disre disregarded it and not valued it and not treasured it and been too busy for it. Um, have mercy on us, Lord. And I pray that the words you've given to us this day would cause us to wonder anew and treasure anew the privilege of being in Jesus' family by the great work of your Son on the cross and in his resurrection on the third day on our behalf. These things we ask in his great and matchless name. Amen.